This week we're talking about Italy, Somaliland, Turkey, an update on Germany and South Africa, and the USA's potential trade war. Hello and welcome back to Envoy's podcast for the 9th of March 2018. I'm your host, Nathan Shaw. This week we're looking at Italian elections, Somaliland's port dispute with Somalia, Turkey's war in Syria, an update on Germany and its formation of government, and South Africa's sudden change in policy on white farmers. We'll also be taking a closer look at President Trump's new tariffs and the potential for a trade war in the global economy. Now on to this week's roundup. Italy's recent election has left the country with a hung parliament. There has been a major shift in powers and the old centre-left government has been basically thrown out of office. The centre-left Democratic Party has taken a huge hit as it is seen as being unable to deal with the economic and migration woes of the country. The centre-right has gained some ground in the country, but the most interesting is the Five Star Movement, a populist group that has gained the largest single uh, set of votes in the country. The Five Star Movement is a populist movement, and so it has a range of policies, some that are Eurosceptic, some that are youth-focused, some that are against migration, um, trying to fix the economy. It's really a grab bag of all kind of different policies. The biggest problem, though, is that they've previously stated that they would not form government with any of the other parties in the system because they didn't want to be seen as part of the establishment. However, since it's a hung parliament, somebody needs to make a deal with someone else. And the recently ousted government has said that they won't be making a deal with anyone and they plan to go into opposition. This leaves the country with a problem. If the Five Star Movement doesn't make a deal with the centre-right, there may not be a proper full majority government in the country. However, if they do make a deal, they'll be undermining their own policies and their rhetoric as being the outsider party that doesn't want to work with mainstream politics. There's a chance that Five Star might make a deal with the centre-left party, the Democratic Party, but many of their voters who have come to them from the Democratic Party might be unhappy with them joining the Democratic Party. At the same time, those centre-left voices probably not very happy if the movement joined the centre-right, since they would have opposing politics. This leaves Italy's election in a real dilemma where it's unsure what kind of party is going to come out on top and what kind of policies we're going to see out of it. We'll bring you an update when something develops. Now on to Somaliland. Somaliland is probably not a country you know very well. It is technically not recognised by world governments as it is a secessionist region from Somalia. Somaliland came out of Somalia after the civil war that started in 1986. The civil war was basically a rebellion against an oppressive military junta. The government had tried to inflame clan rivalries to divert focus from its own unpopularity, but it backfired and it created a real firestorm within the country. In the end of the the beginning of the civil war, as it were, the north eventually seceded before to form Somaliland, while the South has had ongoing tensions, and until this day, there have been new rising powers there, most recently have been Islamic insurgents. Now, Somaliland has developed somewhat of a a reasonable stability and uh, a potentially promising democracy in Africa. However, it has several problems that still beset it. Its economy has been struggling. There's a degree of corruption that's still inherent in the system. And it's not recognized by the international community, so it makes it really difficult to get international loans or to have formal relations with other countries. That's the problem that it's encountering right now. 
as it tries to make a deal between a maritime terminal company called DP World and Ethiopia, it's running into a problem where Somalia is obviously objecting to the fact that it's making deals on what it considers Somalia's behalf and undermining its own sovereignty. The deal was basically Ethiopia wanting to buy 19% uh, stake in a port, injecting funds into the country and potentially helping it grow. But Somalia has declared the deal null and void as it considers the attempts by Somaliland to settle the deal to be a violation of its sovereignty and unity. In response, Somaliland's president called it a declaration of war in very aggressive rhetoric. This is all over the port of Berbera, which is not far from Djibouti and is kind of along the, the laneway that you would take to go up to the Suez Canal, up through Egypt and, and towards the Mediterranean. It's a very lucrative area, and if Somaliland could organize itself around this, it might be able to stabilize itself fully. But this creates a problem for Somalia, which sees it as effectively siphoning away uh, income that should be coming to the country as a whole, as it tries to defend itself and it is busy with dealing with Islamic insurgents in the south. Hopefully they uh, won't go into direct conflict and find some solution, but we'll keep you updated. Turkey has recently gone on a major offensive in Syria, but not against the Syrian government. It's focusing its efforts on the ethnic Kurds. The Kurds are a group of people living in Turkey, Syria, Iraq, and Iran. And much like Somaliland, they've been agitating in the past to try and create their own state. Now, the Kurds have been great allies of the West recently, as they have been uh, the principal forces uh, initially in Iraq and then further on in Syria, fighting against ISIS. That has made them principal allies of the West, and in particular the US, who have been supporting them with airstrikes. The Kurds' will to fight and ability on the ground to fight ISIS have effectively turned back the tide, and now they've gained a lot of territory. Now, this territory could potentially be used to create their own state, and from Turkey's point of view, this is a dangerous precedent. If the Kurds set up their own state in Syria, which borders Turkey, it might help provide them a basis for doing so in Turkey. And so Turkey is lashing out into Syria and trying to crush the Kurds there. Now, the main problem with this is that brings Turkey into conflict with an ally of the US. The US and Turkey, are obviously, they're NATO allies, and Turkey has the second largest standing army in NATO. This makes Turkey very, very important, as historically it's been a uh, country that's been used to kind of counter Russia in the Cold War. However, things have changed recently with a $2 billion arms deal that has recently been signed in late December last year with Russia, where Turkey was buying uh, surface-to-air missiles. This gets uh, Russia more money and potentially uh, helps create a rift in NATO. Additionally, Turkey arrested two American consular staffers before re releasing them last year, which caused a suspension of visa services temporarily in retaliation. This has created a degree of bad blood between Turkey and the US and worsened relations. So there could be a situation where you might see Turkey moving away from the US and potentially those two forces coming into conflict in Syria in some limited way. While this is possible, it's highly unlikely as Turkey is far more important to the US than the Kurds are. Strategically speaking, it's a massive country with a big economy and a strong army where the Kurds are a diverse and fractured people that can't provide the same kind of strategic importance that Turkey can. Therefore, it's likely that the US is going to side with Turkey and the Kurds will likely lose out. 
Now let's move on to an update on Germany. Previously, we talked about Chancellor Merkel, the leader of Germany, attempting to appoint a successor and stabilize the leadership of her party, while she's also been trying to form government in the meantime. After elections where the Christian Democratic Union uh, lost votes and their partners, the Social Democratic Party, lost significant votes, there was a possibility that the two might not form government. The SPD, or the Social Democratic Party, which is the center-left party that had formed a coalition with the Christian Democratic Union, was seen by its supporters as having uh, not protected workers properly and had suffered significantly in the election as a result. Now, luckily for Chancellor Merkel, the SPD recently had a vote within its own party and it agreed to form government with Merkel's CDU. Now, this might be a bit of an acrimonious relationship, though, as the SPD won't want to be seen as too friendly with the Christian Democratic Union, as that will make them seen as being part of the establishment and will further hurt them in future polls. So there's going to be likely a lot of pushing for their own positions and are trying to pull the centre-right further to the left and protect workers to, uh, to try and fix their current electoral problems. Now an update in South Africa. The president of South Africa has confirmed his government's position to forcibly take land from white farmers and to give them to their black constituents. This has been an ongoing problem since majority rule has come about. Beforehand, the white farmers controlled most of the land, where the new government has been trying to move that land and distribute it more evenly. However, when this has happened in the past, such as in Zimbabwe, which was once Rhodesia, the resulting lack of ability to use the farms properly resulted in widespread famine. There is considerable concern that this will happen again or that this will undermine property rights in the country and make it harder for investment to occur because people might be worried that their investments might be seized by the government. We'll be keeping a very close eye on this in the future. That finishes up this week's roundup. Now we're going to look at trade and this is obviously in the news a lot. You've probably seen something about President Trump's plan for tariffs on steel and aluminium, uh, aluminium for our American listeners. Now, you might be asking, why is President Trump pursuing this policy? There's a perception in the U.S. that the middle and lower classes have been losing out to international trade and automation, and the dire straits for some people have meant that they're looking for an alternative, a, a way to gain jobs, and this is seen as a popular move for Trump to engage in to shore up his own base. Real wages in America for people below the top 20% have been fairly stagnant, around about 1%. While this is reasonably low, this doesn't mean that they're not gaining over time, as the purchasing power of the US dollar can increase and allow them to buy more with what they would normally have. For instance, if an iPad is made in China, it might be cheaper than if it's made in the US, and thus you can buy more of those goods with the same amount of money. This can make you relatively more wealthy than you would have otherwise been if you just looked at your wages increasing over time. However, even with that ability to buy goods at cheaper prices, there can be other effects in the economy making it harder to live. In America, education and healthcare costs are extremely high. And while American employers may pay for your healthcare, there's issues that you may not be covered or that you'll be deemed ineligible after the fact because the insurance company is obviously trying to save as much money as it can. And so while an iPad or a, a t-shirt may be cheaper, the increased cost in healthcare and education has meant people are unable to engage in those institutions. It's hard to blame trade in many ways. 
as the healthcare and education costs in America are more of a domestic issue. However, regardless of this, people feel the strain on their bottom line and the increased debt they've taken over time to try and make up for this uh, came to a shuddering halt in the global financial crisis. Now, I'm going to go into a little bit of background on Trump's team and, and why we're seeing this happen. When Trump came into his presidency, he selected certain people for certain roles that reflected his positions. He made Robert Lighthizer a trade representative, and he's well known for his successful pressuring of Japan to reduce steel and auto exports to the U.S. under the Reagan administration, and he's seen a bit of as a, as a trade warrior. Additionally, Peter Navarro was made the director of White House Trade Council, which was an organization basically set up to start trade wars. Peter Navarro wrote a book called Death by China, so it's easy to see where he stands on free trade and who he thinks might be uh, America's opposition. Now, for a time that seemed like we might be not going this way and that we might be returning more to the, the status quo, as Peter Navarro was moved to the Office of Trade and Manufacturing Policy, which was then moved under the National Economic Council Director, Gary Cohen. Now, you might recognize the name Gary Cohen because he was the one who recently resigned over the proposed tariffs the president has just announced. So this shows that over time, the voices in the administration that are pro-trade war, anti-free trade, more protectionist, have gained power over time. So if there's force in the government uh, to push a trade war, what is a trade war? A trade war is basically when countries start trying tit-for-tat policies of making it more difficult for other countries to export goods to that country. And so if I try and sell a computer into your country and you don't like me doing that, you might put a tariff, which is basically a tax, so that when I sell it to your country, someone buying it has to pay extra, which will go to the government. This de-incentivizes buying imports from other countries and is trying to encourage people to look locally where they buy. Now, the problem with this is that someone overseas may be able to make something cheaper than you can, and if you specialize in what you're good at and they specialize what they're good at, you can trade and end up with more than you would have otherwise if you tried to do everything by yourself. This is the main benefit of free trade, and while free trade doesn't exist globally uh, in a perfect system, it is a theory, and there's still many subsidies and protections that exist, we've moved significantly towards uh, the free trade model over time. Now, if a trade war would increase costs locally, why would President Trump be doing this? Well, there's a couple reasons. One is that it looks good politically uh, for the domestic market. Two, it helps deal with a real issue currently in the, the world economy, in that China has been what they call dumping steel onto the global market. Dumping is when you overproduce something and you decide to sell the excess onwards to someone else at a really low price, just trying to claw back a few dollars. But by doing that, you can hurt the other economies of the world where a normal country might have a, a reasonably competitive steel industry. If you suddenly flood the market with steel, they won't be competitive and they might go out of business. Now, this is a significant problem in Africa where food dumping in the past has meant that the country will have a set of farmers who are making food and they're getting paid a nominal amount of money for that. But if foreign corporations come in and sell their food there for practically nothing, that means the farmers locally can't support themselves and their farms will basically have to close. And while that might be good for the locals and that they get to eat very cheaply, if next year 
there's not the same level of dumping occurring, then there'll be no farmers to support the local population and there'll be famine. And so there's a reasonable reason to go after uh, corporations or countries that are engaging in dumping. However, Trump's tariff has been touted as a global tariff rather than targeting countries that are engaging in dumping. Recently, though, there has been a bit of a backpedaling with uh, Trump saying that Mexico and Canada might be exempt uh, due to local negotiations and also singling out Australia as a good example of a country that might be able to get an exemption. This is a much smarter way of doing it as you want to target the countries that are causing the problem and not unduly affect others that may upset other countries. So in this case, you'd be trying to target China. Now, the reason China dumps steel is that it's more worried about keeping people employed and just making whatever than being profitable in the long term. The reason they do this is because employment is seen as a stabilizing factor for the social fabric of the country. If there were large numbers of unemployed people, they might blame the government and rise up. And so it's really, really important to the Chinese government that people are continuously working all the time. Now, there's ways to get around tariffs and that you might sell your goods to a country that doesn't have a tariff levied against it, and then it can sell it on to uh, America, and that way you might be able to get around the tariff. Or you might build a bunch of components, uh, ship them individually to a country, and then have locals uh, assemble them. That's how people have got around auto tariffs in the past in America. So if a trade war is hard to prosecute and tariffs make you inefficient by making you pay more for things, why would the U.S. go and do this? Well, America is somewhat unique in this regard in that it actually isn't integrated into the global economy as much as you might think. If you think of exports as uh, goods and services you sell to other countries and imports are things you buy from other countries, then as a percentage of its overall economy or GDP, America has very low, in global terms, imports and exports. Its exports are only about 12% of its GDP and its imports are only about 15% going by 2016 figures. Whereas China would be around 20% on exports and about 17 to 18% on imports. That's kind of a, an overall figure of 26% to 38% in terms of how much you need the global economy. Whereas Germany has exports ranging up to 46% of its economy and imports of 38% uh, for a total of over 80%. This represents its trade between countries in the EU, as well as its uh, very big market for its cars in the US. And so this means that if America makes trade more difficult, it will affect other countries disproportionately more than it will affect America. And that gives it leverage. Furthermore, America protects global shipping. You may wonder why America has so many aircraft carriers and battle groups. And part of the reason is to ensure that free trade can occur and Nobody can interrupt the free trade of goods. However, this is costly. While America has borne this cost in the past, it may not do so in the future. Now, I'm going to give a basic story about American view of trade from the end of World War II until now. And just a very basic history to give you an overview of how Americans look at trade at the government level. After World War II, the American economy was about 50% of the world economy. It was just absolutely massive. But the rest of the world was still stagging after World War II, and it didn't really have the money to buy American products. So it hatched what was called the Marshall Plan and basically spent a lot of money rebuilding those countries and adding liquidity or cash to their systems so that they could get going and buy American uh, exports. 
Now, the countries that received those benefits were generally U.S.'s allies or potential allies. And so it can be seen as the U.S.'s attempt to build its alliance against Russia at the start of the Cold War. In addition, it said that it would protect the sea lanes and allow countries around the world to engage in trade as an attempt to try and entice them into America's system. America also opened up its economy to receive whatever exports those countries had to try and help them export their way to affluence. And so you can see from an American's perspective, trade is a means to developing alliances to defeat its Cold War enemy, the USSR. This worked wonders because the USSR didn't really rely on shipping overseas long distances. Generally, it was trading with its uh, nearby neighbors or within the USSR. On top of this, it was vitally important that oil would be shipped to the country. And so America spent a long time and is quite famous for this for making friends in the Middle East to ensure that flows of oil would uh, reach the country. It's for that reason that historically, America's tried to keep naval assets in the Persian Gulf to make sure the flow of oil uh, wouldn't be interrupted. So we're quite used to the system where you can ship anywhere very cheaply. You don't have to worry about protecting your shipping containers. Other than a few instances recently with piracy, generally it's been very, very cheap because no one has to worry about protecting their ships. The Americans basically pick up the tab. But now America doesn't have any great USSR enemy to defeat. Now, after the end of the Cold War, the USSR went away. And so there is no real reason for this uh, trade and defense to exist as much. America still needed oil, but it didn't need the alliances as much as it once did. And more recently, with the Shell Revolution in America, it has made it no longer requiring oil, which we touched on last week with Saudi Arabia and its worries that America might not protect it in the future. And so we get to this point now where it doesn't really need a lot of the benefits of this current system, but the current system really benefits other countries, in particular China, which is more seen as a rival these days. So America has some incentives in this regard to kind of bring the system down uh, so that China would not be able to export cheaply and to import oil that it desperately needs to survive. We're used to the system where shipping containers can move around the world very cheaply. No one's really paying the cost to protect them except the U.S. And so we might fall into the belief that, well, if America takes away the protection, it's probably going to be okay. Everyone's used to the system. No one's going to attack each other we'll be able to go on like we were before. However, I would point you to the Iraq-Iran war. In 1980, Iraq invaded Iran to try and overthrow the newly formed Islamic Republic of Iran. When the war bogged down to a stalemate, the Iraqis started targeting Iranian oil shipments and ports. The hope was that Iran would close the Strait of Hormuz, which is the path where oil leaves the Middle East, preventing the flow of oil and triggering a, a superpower response. This was referred to as the tanker war. Iran struck back attacking Iraqi tankers, but it tried to avoid other uh, nations' shipping routes. However, when Iraq started moving its oil through other Gulf states, such as Kuwait and Saudi Arabia, Iran started attacking those. This intensified to the point that the USA stepped in, protecting those shipments and punishing Iran with strikes until Iran gave up attacking those tankers. And so the vulnerability of shipping, especially oil shipping, means... If there's no superpower around that's going to protect the, those potential targets, there's a strong incentive to go after them. And so currently, with Saudi Arabia's antipathy towards Iran and vice versa, you could get the same situation occurring. But if America doesn't need the oil, and it's not interested in being involved anymore in the Middle East, it could pull back, and those two could engage in their own tanker war. 
the last 70 to 80 years, most countries have effectively ceded any kind of sovereignty on the seas beyond their own immediate waters. And their ability to potentially tax, embargo, regulate, or blockade in peacetime. In exchange, they have gained this access to the global commons and global trade. But that's been underwritten by American and allied naval power. If that goes away, we may see a return to like pre-19th century styles of uh, naval warfare, convoying, and the like. Now, this would be disastrous for countries such as Germany that like to ship its products worldwide. Uh, in addition, countries like China, which don't need uh, exports as much as a country such as Germany, still require certain valuable resources such as oil. And so if oil was cut off, the country would probably stagnate and the economy go into recession. While export and imports aren't everything, they're a good general indication. There are other parts of the global economy that you want to be part of, such as uh, global financial institutions. But America is seen as a very safe place to invest. And so if the global economy did take a sudden turn as shipping costs rose and the economy started going recession, it might actually benefit America as capital would leave those countries and try to go to America to find a safe harbor in their very strong domestic economy. So you can see there's a lot of incentives for America to go this route. It may not, it may move there slowly over time, but it's not as crazy as it seems. Now, the best idea would be try to focus your attempts in the trade war, make friends with your allies and uh, punish those that you're not interested in working with. It's important to work with Mexico and Canada because they make up an important part of those earlier export and import figures. And so America would still be able to gain what it needs, but everyone else would be on their own. We're starting to see a shift somewhat in rhetoric from the Trump administration, so they might be going this route in the future. If America went this way in the future, it would be groundbreaking for the global economy and would really change the nature of foreign relations. So while it doesn't seem likely currently, in the long term, it is possible. And if it did happen, it would fundamentally change how we look at the world. This has been the third Envoy podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Shaw, and we'll bring more to you next week.